Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. When the pandemic began, the state of Connecticut worked to get individuals out of shelters and house them in area And that will continue this winter, too. But what services exist to reach youth who are at risk? A survey by the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness estimated that last January, nearly 2,500 young people had unstable housing or had become homeless. Today, where we live, we talk with providers about efforts to reach youth and the challenges teens and young adults face. Are you a person who has experienced homelessness or do you know someone who has? Where did they turn for help? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. As always, you can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. On Zoom with me now is Richard Cho, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Richard, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Lucy, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Also with us is Roy Graham, who works for the coalition as the Youth Special Projects Coordinator, where he oversees the Youth Homelessness Demonstration Project. We'll learn more about that in just a couple of minutes. Roy, thank you for joining Where We Live. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So, Richard, I'll start with you. I I mentioned this youth count that your organization does annually, and recently you released a report on the 2020 count. Can you talk about um, how uh, you and your team go out in the community uh, to find uh, young people at risk? And tell us more about the numbers. Sure. So we've been conducting these annual counts um, since 2017. Um, I think most of you know, and I think I spoke before about the annual point in time counts that we conduct uh, which actually go back to 2007, where uh, you know typically volunteers across the state are mobilized, and we work with both homeless service organizations and volunteers, and we canvass the streets uh, and also count the folks in shelters um, and report that to HUD. Um, in 2017, HUD began requiring communities to start counting youth um, who are experiencing homelessness, understanding that um, youth who experience homelessness don't typically uh, you know experience homelessness the same ways as adults and families. Um, they don't use homeless shelters as much. They may not sleep outside. Um, many youth are um, living doubled up or in other um, places. And so um, understanding that the youth were a hidden homeless population, um, HUD began requiring communities to conduct a separate uh, uh, method for counting youth. And so in 2017, we began conducting a week-long survey. Uh, instead of doing a one-night count, we would do a week-long count. We'd go um, identify locations where we were likely to find youth, everywhere from schools and libraries to soup kitchens uh, and other programs. Uh, And we would um, administer a survey um, to to speak with youth and determine what their housing status was. Um, And um, so we've been doing that the last several years. Um, In 2020, uh, we conducted that uh, towards the uh, last week of January. uh, And what that survey found was that Uh, We estimate that uh, about uh, 7,800 youth would experience um, either homelessness or housing instability during uh, 2020. Um, And of those, 
about uh, almost 2,500, 2,462, we estimate uh, would experience literal homelessness, meaning they'd be sleeping in uh, on the streets, um, in shelters, or in their vehicles, or in places not meant for human habitation um, over the course of the year 2020. So, Richard, nearly 8,000 youth, as you mentioned, experienced homelessness or housing instability in 2020. Uh, break that number down for us. Is this an increase from previous years or a decrease? And, uh, you know, when we talk about the difficulty of, of reaching these youth uh, to count them, uh, you know, just some of the questions you have and concerns when you saw that data. Yeah, I mean, truthfully, it's hard for us to tell whether the number's going up or down um, because our methodology isn't solid. Um, the challenge with counting um, youth is that we're we're conducting um, surveys where we're likely to identify youth who are experiencing homelessness. We tend to oversample communities where there's higher rates of poverty. Um, and, and then what we do is, is work with a sociologist to actually conduct an extrapolation to determine what is the larger number. And we actually surveyed 2,573 um, youth. Um, and then from that number, we were able to, to do an extrapolation um, but our methodology for that extrapolation changes from year to year. So it, it's hard to tell whether the number is going up or down. What we do know is that the number is a lot bigger than what um, other data sources would tell us, either through our annual um, point in time counts um, or our, our homelessness management information system data. And essentially what it tells us is that there are a lot more youth who experience homelessness than our regular data systems would tell us. Um, and so um, what we gather is that the number probably stayed relatively flat from uh, 2019 to 2020. Um, and that uh, of the you know, youth, um, we're, we're seeing a pretty significant number of youth uh, who are uh, under the ages of 18 who are experiencing homelessness, uh, as well as um, significant numbers of youth who are 18 to 24 who experience homelessness. I mentioned Roy Graham is also with us, and he works for the coalition as the Youth Special Projects Coordinator. Uh, Roy, when you uh, saw the data and you think about the, the people that you work with, uh, again, that 18 to 24 range, uh, what was your reaction? Well, um, Lucy, uh, thank you. I, I guess I wasn't uh, too surprised because, you know, youth are, they're a complex uh, population, and you know, they are also very resourceful. So um, they're, they don't typically see themselves as being homeless, even though they may be house hopping and couch surfing. So, you know, you're not going to see them typically, you know, as the, you know, regular, uh, the profile of sleeping under a bridge or just, you know, being on the sidewalk, they're going to be at a friend's house or, or somewhere else. So, uh, as Richard said, the number, you know, numbers cannot, you know, cannot really tell the the youth who are really experiencing homelessness or unstable housing. So, uh, while the number seems like a, a lot, it, it is a high number. I I, I was not mm. surprised, uh, especially given the fact that uh, we realized that gap where uh, youth. Are not really uh, are not really eligible for a lot of the programs, or were not eligible for a lot of the programs that could assist uh, young people, uh, such as um, the regular uh, rapid rehousing programs, because they didn't meet meet eligibility requirements, or some of the other programs that would able be able to assist them until 
the youth homelessness demonstration program uh, came about uh, to be able to assist as well as other programs that we have uh, now to assist them. So tell me more about the demonstration uh, project, Roy. So is this uh, uh, allocated federal money specifically to help uh, youth at risk? Uh, Yes, uh, Lucy, it's a a HUD federal program. And and back in 2018, uh, Connecticut was one of uh, 10 communities across the country uh, who were who received were awarded this uh, grant for two years. Uh, realizing that there is a gap, as I spoke uh, previously about that uh, youth were not eligible for um, other funding programs to be able to assist them with housing and other services and resources. So uh, HUD provided, awarded Connecticut with this uh, program, and it was initially a demo project, which is now a uh, full program. And it was uh, designed to assist individual unaccompanied uh, youth and young adults between the ages of 18 to 24 to not only provide uh, funding and financial assistance for uh, security deposits and rental assistance, but also for other services and resources that would be able to assist you to be able to sustain housing such as uh, child care costs or uh, transportation needs and and many other uh, eligible costs as well. Mm. You mentioned, uh, Roy, that uh, people, uh, when they hear that someone may be homeless, they think of someone sleeping under a bridge. And, and young people, uh, especially those especially under 18, they're going to be the ones that may be staying with a friend or hopping from place to place. But can you talk more about the some of the reasons behind why we are hearing that an estimated 8,000 uh, young people were experiencing housing instability or homelessness in our state in 2020. What are some of the factors that lead them to, to not have stable housing and where they find themselves in a situation that they need help? Uh, sure. I mean, the number one cause we know as a factor is family conflict, but mm-hmm. it, it's much uh, more complex than that with, with young people. Uh, it could be um, family conflict, sure, but you know there could be economic reasons. There could be uh, factors such as uh, their uh, sexual orientation. Uh, there could be uh, uh, abuse in the home. Uh, there could be religious reasons. I mean, so there are many other uh, factors that go into uh, youth uh, becoming unstably housed or homeless. Some uh, households uh, live by, you know, different standards. Their environments are different. So, you know, they, they may have other rules uh, that, they, uh, that are within the household that if the youth does not abide by, they could be um, put out and then mm-hmm. have to, um, you know, find a place uh, which could be with, a, you know, some, a friend or another uh, relative, but they can't stay there long term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Uh, Richard Choi is also here with us, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness as we focus on youth at risk in our state. Uh, Richard, when we talk about this youth count that happened last January, uh, obviously before the pandemic. And so tell us now that we've been living in this now for, what, 11 months or, or so, I've lost count. What are you hearing from providers and from youth at risk uh, of how uh, they um, have been reaching out for help or what's been happening in Connecticut over the last several months? I'm glad you pointed that out, pointed that out, Lucy, because we are, of course, releasing this report almost a year after the surveys were conducted. And um, frankly, part of that was just um, because of uh, how much of our focus and attention has shifted towards the COVID um, response. Um, which kind of drew our attentions away from finalizing this report. Um, but yes, I think this report gives a picture of what youth homelessness looked like prior to the pandemic. Um, and since then, you know, things um, are have obviously been affected uh, because of the pandemic. Um, many of the locations where youth might have gone for help, um, whether that's, you know, homeless shelters or programs or um, transitional programs uh, or even libraries, you know, many of those places have been closed. Um, we also know that many youth, particularly minors, who are still students who experience homelessness or housing instability, um, as schools shifted to hybrid and, and distance learning modes, um, it became a lot harder for young people to be able to self-identify as someone who's struggling with housing um, issues, whether they're couch surfing or doubled up, um, because frankly, um, although schools are federally mandated uh, to identify homeless students and also accommodate um, their educational needs, uh, it really often involves having the ability to have face-to-face -face contact. Um, and so if students are um, not uh, kind of, you know, uh, able to have a person that they can connect with, it's harder for them to be able to disclose the fact that they have um, housing um, issues and needs. One of the data points that we've seen from the State Department of Education is that the rates of students who are failing to log in um, and to show up for distance learning um, seem to um, be overrepresented by those that also um, experience um, housing instability or homelessness. Again, since the data is not great, it's hard to, to fully know, but what we do know is that there seems to be a strong correlation between um, students who are struggling with housing issues um, and, um, and and not actually showing up and, and logging in consistently for, for distance learning um, classes. The other um, way that we have a sense of what's going on is um, through the programs that we administer, as Roy mentioned, we administer funding for shelter diversion and, and rapid exit. So we provide short-term one-time financial assistance for many youth that um, organizations across the state are assisting. And through those, we get case studies, um, case stories of youth. And what we're hearing is that the pressures of COVID um, have been great on households, um, which have been leading to a lot of youth being either kicked out or, or leaving. Um, we also see a lot of instances of abuse um, and domestic violence that are affecting young people as well. So um, those are the kind of the snippets of what we know are um, affecting um, and the additional challenges that young people are facing these days. I wanted to take a, a call from Julio in Manchester uh, here on where we live. Julio, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Thanks for um, my call. Um, you know, I was actually... Um, meditating this morning about the idea of awareness. So thank you so much for bringing awareness to this. Thank you, Julio. Go ahead. Julio, you're there? 
Julio, uh, thank you for calling in uh, again. Uh, the work that Richard and others are doing uh, to help uh, people at risk uh, is very important in our state. And, and something, Richard, I wanted to go uh, back to you on. You mentioned that the data on uh, minors, especially that um, are at risk uh, have, of housing instability or being homeless. Something in your report that really struck me is that uh, it said that there's not a singular system to track minors in our state. When we look at the uh, multiple departments, whether it's DCF or the Department of Correction or the Department of Education or DEMIS, it's it's kind of mind-boggling to think that when we know that there are people at risk and they're awake, especially if they're youth, why are these state agencies not communicating in a way that can make it uh, more successful for them to reach these children, Richard? Yeah, and I wouldn't say that they're not. I mean, they all are doing um, their part. The, the problem is that there's not a singular agency that has the full picture. In a, in a sense, um, youth who experience homelessness are um, the ones who fall through the cracks between all of these systems. Um, some of them are foster care involved, so DCF may have one um, sense of their picture. Mm-hmm. Again, some of them are students, especially if you're under 18, uh, and therefore the State Department of Education might have um, some data on, your, on, on them. Um, you know, we track um, use of homeless services, um, primarily shelters and home, um, homeless outreach programs. So we have another uh, kind of um, slice of the picture, uh, which are youth who actually formally use um, homeless services that are were originally intended for adults. Um, and the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services has a number of programs for, for youth. Um, but um, again, there's not a single system that sort of encompasses youth homelessness. And so um, everybody has a different part. It's sort of like mm. the, the parable of the elephant in the room and in, in the dark room and everyone's t- uh, touching a different piece of it. Um, I think what it takes is um, a collaborative effort across those systems and working with the private sector and municipalities uh, to really get a full picture of youth that are experiencing homelessness. It, you know, it, it sounds cliche, but it really does take a village um, to not only identify youth, but also to assist them. And so a lot of what the youth outreach and counts that we've been conducting are, are just that. It's about how to bring that village together. And we've done that thus far on a week-long basis every year. What we're trying to build towards this year actually is to say, like, we've done this and we've proven that we can come together as a, a community across multiple systems on a week-long basis. Let's figure out if we can get that to be year-round um, and pull together the collaboration. So one of the things that we're in conversations with lots of agencies and organizations about is, um, how do we make that village work um, year round to identify youth? Um, and so mm-hmm. that's something we're working to. Um, I want to quickly mention we just launched um, this week a new municipal campaign, which we're calling My Town Cares, um, in partnership with the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities, where we're calling on all 169 towns and cities in Connecticut to do their part to end homelessness, um, to pass a resolution of support, uh, as well as to identify a point person. And one of the things that we're asking towns and cities. Uh, to take up is to assist us with that data collection um, and so become part of that village um, year-round that can help us identify youth. That's Richard Cho, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness uh, here on Where We Live, as well as Roy Graham, who works for the coalition as the coordinator for the Youth Homelessness Demonstration Project. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk to a young person who's working to help her peers that have experienced homelessness or unstable housing. And you can join us, too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about young people in our state who experience homelessness or unstable housing. A recent report by the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness finds thousands of youth in our state are affected. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Roy Graham is with us on Zoom. He's the coordinator of Youth Special Projects for the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. And joining us now is Diamond Levette. She's a member of Youth Action Council. That's part of the Coordinated Access Network for Greater Hartford and Central Connecticut. Diamond, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. How are you today? I'm doing well. So I mentioned you're a member of the Youth Action Council. So tell us about this group and how did you become associated with it? Um, I um, was somebody who experienced homelessness myself, and I was recommended um, to start working with them because of my experience. They were looking for somebody with experience in the system and basically getting their perspective, and that's what we are. Um, As the Youth Action Council, we are individuals who are able to provide a voice and perspective to youth homelessness and housing instability from our personal experience. And Diamond, because we're talking about this uh, report looking at 2020, uh, from your lived experience, when you hear that there are nearly 8,000 young people that are either homeless or are experiencing unstable housing, you know, why, why do you think that that what has led them uh, to be dealing with this? Like, what are some of the factors and the gaps in, in helping them? I think that there are a lot of gaps and there's a lot of factors and I think that's why there are so many of them because not all of them can be fixed by just one problem. A lot of the people that um, I was in the system with, I I actually was very fortunate enough to, um, uh, when I called 211, I was in and out of a shelter and placed into an apartment within two months, which isn't a um, story for a lot of people, but Um, I was fortunate enough to have that story. However, in comparison to my fiance, he's been stuck in a loophole in the system for four years where he can't get ID because um, you have to have a copy of ID to get ID. And he was um, in the same program as me um, at Friendship specifically, Friendship Service Center. Um, And then when COVID hit specifically, um, it just kind of messed everything up and he's back in the same place after four years. So... I feel like it's kind of set up to help, um, well, certain people do get through, like it does help a lot of people like me, because I do have all of my IDs, I do have everything, like I can handle money pretty much well, but um, not a lot of people can, so I feel like um, it's set up for a certain um, candidate to get through, and a lot of them don't. So Roy Cram, respond to what Diamond shared. She mentioned uh, the ID, some uh, young people not having ID, so that probably prevents them from uh, being able to be eligible for certain programs. Can you talk through that with us? And uh, it sounds like Diamond, when she called 211, she was able to be able to be connected uh, to services, but not everybody even knows to call 211. And so can you walk us through some of the gaps? I'm sure. Uh, and thank you, Diamond, for uh, being here today and lending your voice and bringing that up because, that, you know, she's exactly right because it's more than just providing housing 
or providing uh, rental assistance. Uh, what people are actually looking for is beyond that is knowledge and information and who, what, where's and how's of how to navigate through um, the system. And so uh, being able to make people aware and be able to get them information is part of the gap that we're trying to uh, fill now, as uh, Richard has spoken about earlier with the municipality campaign, just to get awareness out what uh, young people should do, where they should go, who they should connect with, and uh, something like uh, IDs. I mean, of mm -hmm. course, with COVID, uh, a lot of agencies were not open, so people could not go there in person to get IDs. So, you know, finding out information about that, how they can still obtain an ID. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, there are uh, not every youth comes through with the same um, challenges. You know, some have uh, challenges that are more and beyond just getting uh, identification so it may be harder or take longer for them to be able to to get stabilized so that that's some of it as well so none of this is cookie cutter uh mm -hmm. lucy so it is it is quite complex and uh you know so the more people that and more agencies and more community partners that we can get involved with this, we'll absolutely try to assist in, in filling those gaps as well as, you know, training and more technical assistance that, you know, could be uh, provided to folks and staff out in the field, which uh, the CCEH, uh, the coalition uh, also does as well. So um, while we're, we're certainly making progress, there's still um, obviously a lot of work uh, yet to be done. Diamond, I wanted to go back to you because it's important that uh, people hear that there are programs out there and there are people willing to help. But what about just the issue of trust? When you talk to your peers, uh, whatever struggles they may have had, uh, is trust a factor where they feel comfortable uh, leaning on uh, an organization or a provider that's trying to help? Uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk us through that. Absolutely. I think trust is um, a, a very, very, very serious factor because for me, um, uh, again, uh, I could talk about my personal story because I have a lot of people involved um, in my circle. I, um, When I was homeless, I ended up moving into an apartment with my cousin and she was along with me in the shelter, um, Friendship Service Center. And I was fortunate enough to have a room and um, uh, without getting too detailed, I feel like I'm built pretty okay. Like I'm pretty tall and I could handle myself and she's pretty small. And she felt like there was a hierarchy of bullying from even, even though it was a youth shelter that the older youths that would still be technically considered adults know how to take advantage or even some of the people in the shelter aren't really like applying structure as they should because they have relationships with these um, adults and they're not really protecting the youths. So the youths just feel the need to go elsewhere, or, uh, uh, I'm sorry, elsewhere to mm -hmm. feel safer. When I think friendship is a really great place for resources, but I also think it's really crowded by people who aren't really taking advantage of the resources. 
Mm. Uh, Roy, can you respond to what Diamond shared? And uh, we keep talking about shelters, and that's just uh, one conduit for help. For a, a young person that, that doesn't have a place to live, uh, you know, talk us through the, this, the plan in place. So they may go to a shelter first, but then what happens? Well, I mean, the, the first option, uh, Lucy, is we want to keep people out of shelter as much as possible. I mean, shelter, we would like to keep uh, as the last resort. We like to use shelter diversion as a process to try to keep folks out of shelter. Um, and that is not saying that uh, we're trying to deny folks shelter because there are folks who actually will need shelter. But the, the first course of action is to keep uh, people out of shelter. And the, the second piece of that is that uh, when folks are in shelter, there are, you know, youth navigators at agencies which uh, uh, that will assist the shelters in working with with folks. And uh, Friendship Service Center is uh, just one of the few uh, shelters in the state of Connecticut that actually um, are designed for youth and young adults. Uh, that again is one of the gaps that uh, we're looking mm -hmm. at now. When it's when we're talking about young people, most of the shelters are adult shelters. So that's another reason why we try as much as possible to keep young people out of shelters. As uh, as as was just brought up by Diamond that. Uh, there can be some uh, adverse effects, such as bullying, maybe one of them. So uh, shelters are not the place for young people. So we try to do our best to keep them out of shelter. And then, you know, the shelter staff uh, works with uh, other agencies and other uh, folks within the CAN, such as youth navigators, housing coordinators, or other case managers to help get those uh, young people out of shelter as quickly as possible. You can join our conversation as we focus on youth homelessness. Uh, with us today on Zoom, Roy Graham, coordinator of Youth Special Projects for the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness, and Diamond Levette, a member of the Youth Action Council that's part of the Coordinated Access Network for Greater Hartford and Central Connecticut. Uh, Julio is calling back from Manchester. Julio, what did you want to share? Am I coming through now? Yes, go ahead, Julio. So, um, one thing that I was amazed to learn about as I started to work um, with youth um, for the Department of Mental Health um, is the um, levels, you know, of complexity, as um, he mentioned earlier, that this issue has. Um, I know of, of clients who have had a lot of trouble with squatters, and so, um, for one, it creates a situation um, in their homes where um, they can be, their safety can be at risk, their ho housing is of course at risk. So um, it's, it's housing insecurity and it's being caused by another person's housing insecurity. Um, so it's, it's an amazingly complex um, issue when you really decide to, uh, to look at it. Mm. Well, thank you, Julio, for sharing that. Uh, Roy, how do you respond to our caller? Uh, hi. Uh, yeah, no, Julio's absolutely uh, right where we have situations where 
uh, folks, they, you know, people have someone, it could be a relative who uh, they don't want that person to be out on the street or to be sleeping in their car. And this person has a, has an apartment that, but that part apartment is uh, associated with uh, some kind of voucher. And so the lease only will allow for that person who is actually attached to that voucher to be in that apartment. But then that person doesn't want their relative to be on the street or go into shelter. So then they bring that person into the apartment and then it provides that challenging situation that Julio just talked about because this person is putting their housing, their own housing at risk um, to ensure that their relative or their friend, their loved one isn't on the street or in shelter. So you have two two people who are in a housing situation that is at risk, but it also sometimes could lead to two people now who are now unstably housed or could become homeless. So it is really complex. And some of the times you can get creative and maybe talk to the landlord and say, um, well, could we add this person to the lease? Or do you have a bigger unit, say a two bedroom unit that we could move into? And then we could, you know, draw up a, another lease that would have both of our names on it. So that's another way that you can go about it. But it's, you know, he's exactly right. It can be complex and, you know, it, it jeopardizes both people uh, potentially. Mm. A diamond, the, the state uh, general assembly is a meeting uh, this week, starting up their regular session. What do you want state lawmakers to know about your lived experience? What you're hearing from peers who've either experienced homelessness or unstable housing? How do you want to see these gaps addressed? What do they? What do you want them to see them tackle first? I think um, I firstly want to see them tackle the structure first. I think um, awareness is actually a really good point because before I was homeless, I did, I mean, not before I was homeless, before I called 211, I didn't know that I could call 211. I thought that um, that 211 didn't have services for me. Um, admittedly, all of my assumptions were that, like, if I went to a shelter that I would be, like, um, robbed or something or the worst would happen and just to stay far away from shelters but it also kept me far away from probably the best help that I've ever received in my life and it does keep people away from really good help and I think that getting people to know about these resources is a really good point but also the structure of making sure these resources are being used properly would also help people get through a lot better because um, again it might my personal experience at Friendship Service Center, there were like um, people who were um, on a wait list online. There were empty rooms and um, and the staff just not putting people in there. There were people who had been there for way longer than they should have been there. But just because they didn't want to leave the comfortability of like having access to the soup kitchen and lights and Wi-Fi and stuff like that. They had like staff helping them out and stuff like that. So I just, it's not that I don't understand and stuff like that, but the structure keeps a lot of other people from like getting help. So I feel like putting a great amount of structure in place would keep more people getting help. And if you keep in the progress that you're supposed to be on, there would be no reason for you to 
fear getting kicked out of friendship or something like that if you're on the process to um, getting everything you need and getting an apartment and becoming self-sufficient mm. there is no need for the fear mm. and, and Roy Graham uh, before we end here I wanted to ask you the same question um, does it more resources for caseworkers uh, to help uh, youth at risk uh, yeah, one of the things, I mean, we are constantly uh, revisiting and reevaluating uh, the structure that uh, Diamond is speaking of. Uh, youth voice um, is, is uh, definitely one of the things that we look for because we want to understand from their perspective what, uh, what needs to be changed and what we should be looking at. And uh, as we talk about, you know, within this uh industry within this structure you know there is some there is staff turnover and quite frankly um the 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 pay the economic scale is not quite where we would like it to be which may cause uh some of this turnover so i think that that's something that you know we're looking at as well where we can provide uh how staff can be provided with that uh with that uh, better pay uh, scale in order to either um, make it more of a career path, career development path, uh, or how we can better uh, support the staff so that we don't have the turnover so that they can um, assist with young folks better as, as Diamond stated. Roy Graham, again, is the coordinator of Youth Special Projects for the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Roy, thank you for your time. Thank you, Lucy. My pleasure. And Diamond Levette, member of the Youth Action Council. Diamond, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, we're going to hear from a provider in the northwest part of our state, and you can join us, too, as we focus on youth homelessness, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're focused on youth homelessness in our state. Joining us now on Zoom, Gabrielle Padilla, Coordinator of Housing Services through Mental Health Connecticut. Gabrielle, welcome to our show. Hi, how are you? Thank you. Uh, we heard from uh, a young woman who talked about her lived experience and some of the gaps that she sees. I understand you serve the, the northwest region of our state. And so I'm wondering, uh, with the youth that you're working with, uh, what gaps do you see or barriers for them getting the help they need? Uh, yeah, thank you, Lucy. So for us, you know, for the Northwest CT region of the state, we, you know, we service the greater Waterbury area up to the Litchfield County area. And, you know, youth services vary throughout our community. Um, obviously in Waterbury, where it's a larger city, um, more resources are readily available uh, to youth versus up in the Litchfield County area where we are, a much, we're a more rural area. Um, and so resources are a little bit more scarce and barriers such as transportation also present themselves. And so the overall connection um, with youth 
um, creates more of a, of a barrier in that sense. Um, and it's harder for our for my staff, for the navigators to be able to kind of get out there and to network and connect with them in that outreach way um, to make sure that they are getting the appropriate services that they need. Uh, in addition, um, in our region, like as Roy had mentioned earlier, um, there are only a few shelters that are youth focused. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately in our region, we do not have a youth um, a youth shelter in that area. So to when a youth does present, it is intimidating for them to want to enter into shelter. However, I can say that our shelter staff um, really make every effort to make the youth feel welcomed um, when they're coming in. Um, and to make their stay at the shelter short and brief. Mm. So how has COVID exacerbated uh, these barriers, Gabrielle? So COVID has been pretty interesting. Um, in some ways, COVID has kind of been a help in the sense that during the pandemic, during our shutdown, uh, the perks that COVID kind of gave us was there was free Wi-Fi, so youth were able to kind of tap into these hotspots. And so we were able to kind of service them more remotely um, in ways that would have been more of a barrier. In other ways, though, um, it was harder for us to kind of go out and to meet with them face-to-face as when we would go out into communities such as the libraries, such as, you know, coffee shops like Dunkin' Donuts or you know, if we went to McDonald's, you know, we can no longer go there and sit in a place, and have those conversations with them. Um, you, you know, we can't go to a mall and meet them there. So though, in that sense, it made it, it created more of a barrier in that way to have that face-to-face contact. Um, our youth navigator in our region had did a really great job um, in being creative. Um, we had expanded our time of availability for the youth. Um, they now can meet us five days a week from nine to five, uh, where before, prior to COVID, we had set scheduled dates and time frames um, for when the youth could connect with the navigator. And um, so we've expanded our service time for them. And, um, you know, we are going out into the community meeting with them, but we try to do as much as we can through virtually, uh, through, you know, face, FaceTime, Zoom, um, you know, adding wise to kind of get connected in that way and providing them the resources that they need um, as we best can during this time. So Richard Cho, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Uh, talk, uh, respond to what Gabrielle has shared and, and uh, how not all places in our state um, have as robust services uh, to help uh, people at risk, especially young people. Yeah, well, that's certainly true. And, and um, you know, in places like um, New Haven, um, in places like Hartford, you have um, uh, you tend to have more services in general for young people. You know, COVID had an interesting impact in, in that a lot of day programs um, or locations where youth might be able to find help during the day have been um, either closed or, or limited in terms of um, opening. Uh, and so um, in a way, I think uh, what uh, the pandemic has done is help reinforce this message that there's ways to get help that don't require coming to shelter or an in-person context. And as, as uh, Gabriella mentioned, you know, we, we've been able to um, move a lot of our um, intake appointments for our homeless system, whether on the youth side or for adults or families, um, to virtual appointments um, uh, via a 2 on one call. Um, and so 
uh, that's actually opened up uh, the possibility to get help um, from a lot more people who, had, who simply just need access to a phone, which most people seem to have. Um, and so that's that's been a good thing. Um, you know, I think what we're trying to do is build a system where um, we don't have to send people to shelter or a program in order to get help, but where um, the first thing we can do is um, conduct a problem-solving conversation with uh, a youth um, where the goal could be to try to help them stabilize their housing situation. Um, we actually administer um, funding that we receive from HUD um, through the Youth Homelessness Demonstration Program that, that enables us to um, uh, provide uh, financial assistance. So if, if youth need some help um, finding uh, their own home, we can help with security deposits or rental assistance. Um, we can also um, often pay for um, other um, flexible needs that enable youth to stay with um, um, a, a safe situation um, in, in some cases. So, um, you know, again, we're, we're trying to reinforce that message that um, there's ways to address homelessness that don't require coming to shelter programs. Um, mm. And, you know, I think what, what we and built- Richard, is uh, for Richard, earlier, earlier you mentioned uh, this collaboration uh, with Point and Time Count starting up, where you're gonna be working uh, closely with municipalities versus relying on volunteers. Can you uh, talk more about that and how that will help address what we just talked about? Yeah, so, you know, we're required every year to do this Point in Time Count, um, which, as I mentioned before, like primarily focuses on adults and families. Um, but uh, in, you know, typically we, we mobilize uh, close to a thousand volunteers across the state to go canvas the streets um, in partnership with homeless outreach workers and, and homeless services staff. Um, because of COVID, we thought um, we couldn't do that in a way that is safe. So what we've decided to do instead is to rely on the expertise of homeless outreach teams to help identify places where people who are sleeping outside um, might be identified. But um, in, in addition, we're hoping to leverage um, the expertise of municipalities who often are the kind of uh, first line of response to knowing where people are experiencing homelessness, whether because um, police or fire departments are called on the scene, um, they typically know where to find um, homeless encampments or places where people are sleeping outside. Um, and so, um, we, you know, we're, we're in a way kind of turning a crisis into opportunity um, and using the point in time count as a way to really strengthen our collaboration with municipalities. Uh, and as I mentioned, this partnership with CCM, where we are actually um, formally launching a campaign to, to try to enlist towns and cities across the state to do more around homelessness um, is something that um, we're kind of tying this into. So um, we're, we're very excited about the, the potential to potentially have a, all 169 towns and cities uh, commit to our goal of ending homelessness, starting with helping us with identifying people who experience homelessness through this year's point in time count in, 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 in the end of this month. Uh, Gabrielle, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I did want to turn back to you when we think about the barriers that you're seeing in your region. You mentioned uh, mental health and providers. This legislative session starting up this week, uh, what do you want to see lawmakers address uh, to help uh, the young people you're serving? You know, for, for myself, as you know, Roy had mentioned before, this is a complex population and, you know, for on our end, you know, we file we follow the housing first model, um, but as we all know that um, housing is just one part of the solution, and that there are other needs and barriers that are identified when anyone is coming through our system, and we um, we try our best to try to prioritize those other identified barriers such as medical, mental health, substance abuse, life skill trainings, as you know, as to what even Diamond had said herself is that, you know, for her, she felt she um, kind of had, for her, she was kind of fed that mold to 
be that success, but for other youth, they needed a little bit more of that additional support. And I think for um, what we would like to see is that those supports um, become more available and, um, and easily accessible for the youth um, in order to have their housing and their overall crisis just to be able to be resolved and an overall success and sustainable as well. Mm. Uh, Richard, again, just a short amount of time left, but when we think about uh, the upcoming uh, budget process and uh, money uh, to deal with uh, big deficits, are you worried about uh, nonprofits not getting the support they need? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, we'll be advancing our legislative agenda in this um, upcoming session. And the top priority that our members spoke about is the need to make sure that they have adequate funding to be able to pay frontline staff. You know, this year it's made been really clear that people who work in the homeless services sector are considered essential workers. They've been critical to helping protect not only people experiencing homelessness from COVID outbreaks, but the general public as well. And so, um, but one of the things we, they, we experienced is um, declining rates of funding, which has not enabled them to pay their frontline staff, which is also a racial equity issue because so many of the people who work on the front lines of our homeless service system are people of color. Um, and the fact that we've not been able to pay them adequately the fact that there's high staff turnover, uh, we've not been able to invest in their development um, is is a real, I think, um, tragedy. And so we're hoping to try to address that through this session. This will be a topic that we'll return to here on Where We Live. I want to thank Richard Cho, Chief Executive Officer of Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness, and Gabrielle Padilla, Coordinator of Housing Services through Mental Health Connecticut. If you are struggling and you need help, finding housing or uh, any kind of service, you can call 211. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff.